0: The reading for the lesson tonight comes from the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to begin reading in verse 17. And I wanted to read this tonight because it seems to me to be... um, a New Testament parallel to the passage that we're going to look at. It seems to me to uh, fill out in New Testament terms the practical aspect of what we're going to look at tonight. So I wanted us to have that in mind as we look at the other passage. Paul writes, So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking, They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And then verse five, chapter five, verse one, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word. Now please turn back to the book of Micah, uh, to Micah chapter 6. You're sitting at home one day, not expecting anyone, when suddenly there's a knock at the door. You go to the door and you answer it, and a person that you don't know and that you've never seen before is standing there. And there's something vaguely unsettling about this person that you haven't met before. He asks your name, and when you give him your name, he hands you some papers and explains that you're being served with these papers. And it seems that some kind of a suit has been filed in court against you and you have a court appearance to make. I'd imagine that none of us would enjoy that experience or welcome that kind of news. And I suppose how upset we would be would depend on how serious it was, how much we were being sued for, and so on. But what would you think, how would you react, if instead of a human being, a person, bringing suit against you, God himself was bringing suit against you. What if God decided to sue you in court over your faithfulness to him? Maybe words like terror and panic and shock come to mind. Well, we all know God doesn't do that. He doesn't work that way. I hope we remember the lesson this morning, at least those of us that were here. But on several occasions in his dealings with Israel, God sent... The prophets to his people, in effect, to serve papers on them. To call them to trial. To call them to a hearing. Because they had disobeyed him and had broken the covenant. One such passage is this one in Micah chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. And I'd like us to study it this evening because God has some eternal things to say about our relationship with him. So it begins with God calling his people to trial, verses 1 and 2. Listen to what the Lord says. Stand up, plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear what you have to say. Hear, O mountains, the Lord's accusation. Listen, you everlasting foundations of the earth. For the Lord has a case against his people. He is lodging a charge against Israel. Micah's command is, listen, You need to pay attention to this. The prophet summons Israel to God's court. And then God speaks. And he challenges Israel to stand up. It's their turn to plead their case. So stand up and, and tell your side. The jury in this case is a very interesting one because it's not humans who make up the jury. God tells them, plead your case to the mountains. Let the hills hear what you had to say. And not only hear what Israel says, but let the mountains hear the Lord's accusation. God has come with a case against his people. He has charges to make against them. Something is seriously wrong between God and his people. The hills and the mountains of Israel have been silent witnesses to what has been going on. They've been silent witnesses to the way Israel has kept its promises to God. They have stood there and watched as God blessed His people over and over. They have watched and seen how God has kept covenant with them in every way. And they have also seen how God's people failed to keep covenant with God, how they broke faith with Him. And so God calls on the hills and on the mountains to be witnesses, to be the jury, because now it's time for Israel to come clean with God, to own up to her crimes, to take responsibility for her disobedience, for her unfaithfulness. The mountains, the hills, the everlasting foundations of the earth give attention as God confronts his people and his people give answer. But then God brings the charges, and he does so in a way that's very unusual, not at all, what we would expect. Look at verses 3 through 5. My people, what have I done to you? How have I burdened you? Answer me. I brought you up out of Egypt and redeemed you from the land of slavery. I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. My people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, counseled and what Balaam, son of Beor, answered. Remember your journey from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of God. Now, in this context, from what we've already learned, God is the innocent party. God is the one who is wronged, and God is the one who is pressing the charges. And Israel is the one who is being charged. They are the ones who are guilty. But in continuing the, the trial, God seems to reverse the role here with his question, And instead of saying, well, what crimes have have you committed, Israel? God says, what have I done to you? What crime have I committed against you? My people, what have I done to you? And he asks, how have I burdened you? How have I wearied you? Where have I failed you? And in this hearing, God pleads with his people to give him an answer, to explain. Of course, God's answer is ironic, isn't it? God has not done wrong by His people. He has not wearied them. He has not burdened them. He has not failed them. But they have worn Him out with their sin. Imagine that. That God has grown weary with their sin. They have done wrong to Him. They agreed to live by His covenant that He gave at Sinai. But they haven't kept it. They have grown tired of it. It is as if it has become just too much trouble to live before God as righteous people. Now, in all of these things, God has been faithful. He broke the chains of their slavery. He gave them leaders like Moses and Aaron and Miriam. He protected them from their enemies. When some would curse him, he blessed them. When it came to the crossing of the Jordan, he crossed with them. He has always done right by His people. He has always kept covenant with His people. And God so much as says, you know, you just need to remember our history together. You need to remember our family history. You need to remember how it has been between us. How could they forget what He has done? How could they want some other Lord than Him? But God says, that's what's going on. They've gotten tired of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they have pursued the gods of the Baals. And we may think, well, that's Israel's problem, that it has nothing to do with us. But under the new covenant, God still has to say through the Apostle Paul in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9, Let us not become weary in doing good. And the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 3 advises us to consider Jesus so that we will not grow weary and lose heart. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews is written to Christians who are worn out and weary, who are tired of the pressure and the coming persecution, who are wavering in their faith and considering breaking covenant with God and going back to their old lives. And it brings us to the question, do we ever get tired of God? Do we ever get tired of living for God, tired of attending services, get tired of guarding ourselves against sin, tired of living the Christian life? It's hard for us, isn't it, to see people who are wicked prosper and those who are righteous suffer. It's not easy to be different as God calls us to be different. It's not easy to see our friends, the people around us, the people we work with, Enjoy the things of the world and know that we cannot enjoy them. I'm really grateful that so many found this morning's lesson encouraging and helpful. Somebody told me we need a sermon like that now and then. I'll have to remember that. I don't know if I can preach it again. But um, we, need, we need that encouragement because we're in it for the long haul. And it isn't always easy. So the concern about faithful living is ours too. But we also need to remember that God is faithful. He's made a covenant with us through His Son. He gave His Son for us. He redeems us through His Son. He raised His Son from the dead. He gave us His Spirit. He gives us His Word. In all the ways that we can consider, God has been faithful to us. And He's going to continue to be faithful. He will sustain us through faith struggles and life's temptations. And so what comes back to us is, how can we be faithful? How can we continue to be loyal to God and to serve God? And I'm not saying that to suggest that anybody sitting here hasn't been. I don't mean that at all. But that's the day-to-day issue that we face. How can I be faithful today in the things that I have to do, and the places I have to go, and the things that I have to say today? How can I show myself to be faithful to the Lord? Well, Israel hears what God charges her with. And in verse 6 and 7, Israel answers. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgressions, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? How shall I come before God? What will please the Lord? What can I offer him for the sins that I've, we've committed? All those questions in those two verses are, are not simply inquiries, but they're confessions. They are confessions that say that God's charges against them, God's concern and disappointment with them is valid. They have sinned. They have fallen from keeping covenant. And so Israel acknowledges that by asking, what shall we do? How shall we come before the Lord? And so Israel makes suggestions of how they might come before the Lord. And at each stage, their offer to bring something to God for their sin becomes more and more extravagant. Israel asks first, what can I bring when I come to bow before the Lord? You go back to the book of Leviticus and you'll find that God warned his people not to come before him empty-handed. So what shall we bring? And the first suggestion is a burnt offering of a calf a year old. It may not seem so to us because we live so far from the farm, so far removed from that kind of a life, but a calf that was a year old was a substantial investment. A lot of effort and a lot of expense would already have gone into a year-old calf. And so Israel says, shall we bring year-old calves? Shall we bring the best of our flocks, our our herds, to offer him? But then they increased their suggestion. How about thousands of rams? What what if we just lined up great herds of rams and, and brought those to sacrifice to God? Or what if we brought millions of gallons of oil and offered that oil to God? Would that please him? Would that satisfy him after all that we have done wrong in breaking covenant? And we might think, well, that's kind of strange, but if you look at Second Kings, First and Second Kings, Solomon made those kind of lavish offerings when he dedicated the temple to God. Just massive amounts of oil and sheep and, and other animals were offered. But that doesn't seem to answer the question. And so Israel makes another offer. Shall I give God my oldest child? Shall I offer a sacrifice of my oldest son, of my oldest daughter? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Will that please God? Will that make Him happy? Will that satisfy Him? Again, in all of this, Israel is confessing we have sinned. We have fallen short. We have not kept covenant as we should. And the desire is, is there some way we can make it right? Is there some way that we can come back into fellowship with God? Israel is saying we will do anything we can to fix the problem. But as one writer put it, when you look at this list, they will do everything but the one thing that will really fix the problem. They're willing to offer calves and, and rams and oil and even their own children To satisfy God's anger for what they've done. But that really is not what's going to solve the problem. Again, what Israel offers God is not all that foreign to us, is it? I don't know that any of us have wanted to offer our children in sacrifice. That might seem foreign. But don't we worry about whether we're good enough? Don't we worry about whether we have done enough? Some of us see the Christian life like a salmon trying to get upstream, just one barrier after the other. Always pushing ourselves. We've got to do one more thing. If we teach someone the gospel, that's a good thing. But it would be better if we could teach two, and it would be best if we could teach ten. I've heard sermons where this good, better, best kind of thinking is, has been pressed. And, you know, since we only taught one and we didn't teach ten, well, we're just not quite as spiritual as we ought to be. You ever hear some of that? It's called living the Christian life on the basis of guilt and our effort. It's bootstrap religion. It says, get out of the way, God, I'll I'll do it. These are external solutions. This is external spirituality. And yet the problem is the internal one. And it wouldn't work for Israel and it won't work for us. God doesn't want what they can bring Him in sacrifices. God isn't asking them for what they can do for Him or what they can bring to Him. God wants much more than that. God's looking for a whole lot more than that. Because what God wanted was His people themselves. He wasn't interested in their property or their children. He wanted their hearts. He wanted their hearts. He wanted their hearts set on him. He wanted their hearts to be delighted in their relationship with him and delighted to live in covenant with him. And it is the same for us. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 12 and, and verse 1, Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as sacrifices, living, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual worship. Is what you do for the Lord important? Of course it is. Are there things that we can accomplish in serving the Lord? Of course there are. But what God is really looking for is our hearts, our faithfulness. We talked about that this morning. Paul says that's our spiritual worship. That's what God is looking for. And so God responds to Israel's confession, verse 8. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. I suppose there's lots of ways to read the beginning of verse 8. One could simply be the inquiry that that it seems to be or the observation that it seems to be. But maybe there's some sarcasm there. Maybe there's some judgment there that in asking these questions, they were asking things that they should have known better, things that they would, should have had a better understanding about. But the case is that God isn't requiring something new of his people. In one form or another, God has already told them these things. This isn't new. These are things that He has told them over and over. And He's quite certain, and He tells them, you know what is good. You know what kind of lives you ought to be living. You know what kind of covenant faithfulness you should be practicing. You know what I want. And so He gives them the list anyway. And the first good that He requires is that they act justly do justice, practice justice, live in a just way with others. When we hear the word justice, we usually think of a courtroom and a judge making a legal decision at the end of a trial. And some of that applies to situations in the Bible. But in the Old Testament, justice has more to do with how people treat each other. Acting justly has to do with treating other people with respect, Acting justly has to do with upholding the rights of others. Justice is the community of believers and how they treat each other, whether the community is Israel or whether it's the church. Acting justly is providing for and caring for and supporting those that are weaker, those that are poor, those that are at the margin. The ones Jesus is talking about in Matthew 25 when he talks about the sheep being divided from the goats. It's upholding those who are too weak to hold themselves up. James says that it is the heart of faith, it is the heart of religion, to visit the orphan and the widow. That is what God means, to act justly. Jesus says it is doing to others as we would have them do to us. Again, that's what God means by acting justly. Justice means that we treat no brother or sister as if they didn't count or as if they didn't matter. Justice finds expression in the next step in loving kindness or loving mercy, which is the next good that God requires. I'm sure we all know that in the New Testament, agape is the most important word for love. And as we learned in our study of Ruth not too long ago, we learned that in the Old Testament it is the word hesed or loving kindness, or steadfast love, or loving mercy. And as the Old Testament says over and over and over again, God has loving kindness for his people, which is simply to say that God loves them with a love that will not let them go. Jeremiah will say in Lamentations, "...the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning." Great is thy faithfulness, Lamentations 3:22 and 23. God is loyal to his people. If he says he's going to do something, if he commits himself to his covenant, then nothing will prevent him from keeping his word. Because God loves with such steadfastness, because his love is unfailing, he wants us to love him the same way, with a similar steadfastness. We practice such love, in the words of one writer, when we give, when no giving is required. When we act, when no action is required of us. When we sacrifice and serve, when no sacrifice or service is expected or required. Jesus commands us to love one another in John 13, 34 and 35. John says in 1 John three sixteen. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. How can we be hateful and unkind to each other when we are called to love and kindness? To act justly and to love kindness is to love our neighbor as ourselves, which Jesus himself makes a command for all time in Mark chapter 12, verse 23-31. to 31. But there is a third good that Israel already knows, a third good that they should be practicing, and that is that they should walk humbly with their God. In the New Testament, Paul makes the same command in Ephesians 4 and verse 1 when he calls on the church to walk worthy of their calling, and in chapter 5 and verse 1 when he commands us to walk in love. Be careful then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's word I- will is, Ephesians 5, 15-17. Our human tendency, like Israel's human tendency, is to live for ourselves, to walk, to live the way that we want to. But Micah, or God through Micah, is urging us to set aside that human tendency and instead to walk with God, to have a humble heart, And to live in humble trust before Him. To live in fellowship with Him. To allow God to set the direction for our lives. To let His Word be the lamp for our feet as we walk the paths of righteousness before Him. God has no need for our fellowship. God is complete in Himself. But as we read... From Micah and Ephesians, as we read from Genesis to Revelation, God created us, and he desires communion and relationship with us. He invites us to walk with him in the light. He calls on us and encourages us to give our hearts to him completely. Again, it is ourselves that God wants. Every part of us withholding nothing from him. That is what we are called to. That is how we live faithfully. That is how we live in covenant with Him. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with Him. And as we go on through this week, may God help us to do those things. Let's finish with a song of encouragement. If someone's here tonight and needs a prayer, won't you come? Always stand this.